America's Top Ten with Casey Kasem. Our exclusive review of the Top Ten on Billboard's Pop, Soul, Country, and Album Charts for the week ending March 4th, 1984. Now, here's Casey Kasem. Thank you and hello again, everybody. Welcome to America's Top Ten. Welcome to RushCast. Thank you very much for being here. We really appreciate it. My name is Jay Mantis. And we're doing our 2016 album series, No Album Left Behind. We're really glad to have you here. We are officially halfway through the album series, which is really cool. This has gone really, really quickly. Uh, when we started in January, you know, I thought, wow, we're going to be into June before this thing is over. That's a lot of albums. They have, If you do one album a year or one album a week, they have essentially half a year of albums. So glad to have you here, and we're doing a really fun album today. I want to thank Ron Reed, as usual, for doing or for providing our intro music that's really cool to have so we appreciate that ron and i do recognize more of them as we kind of climb deeper into the 80s i'm recognizing more of those hits that he we hear in the intro um it's just funny because in the first one i knew almost none of them from 1981 today i want to welcome david schmidt from san francisco how's it going david great jay great to be here yeah, I know you came out and said you wanted to do Grace Under Pressure. Uh, is this your favorite album, one of your favorites? How does Where does it rank? It's definitely up there, but it's probably my most nostalgic album because it's the first new Rush album that came out after I became a fan. So it, it holds a special place in my heart. Ah, that, yes. And you know that's my theory. That's like I, I, It just seems to be that way for everybody. The album that comes out after you've become a fan always has like a special place for you. That's right. And uh, I, I had become a fan uh, about a year and a half before this album came out. In September of 82, the, my first few days in high school, uh, a guy sitting next to me who became a great friend of mine in high school introduced me to Rush. Um, I think it was the week after Signals came out. But I didn't know about Signals until many months later. He introduced me to um, Moving Pictures in 2112, and I fell in love with the band, and it was you know, a revelation to me. Um, little did I know that they had just released Signals, you know, like literally the, the week before I was introduced to the band. Mm. Um, but I think I, uh, I, I, I heard of Signals you know, maybe several or many months later. Um, but uh, that so that was '83 when I was first uh, first became a fan. So did you see the tour? So yeah, but the the first show of any kind, the first rock concert that I've ever went to was one of the special Grace Under Pressure warm up shows at oh, Radio yeah. City Music Hall in September 1983. So this is where they they actually played some prototypes of three of the Grace Under Pressure songs. They played early versions of Kid Gloves, Red Sector A, and Body Electric. And um, this was before they started recording the album. 
And, oh man. Okay, uh, so, so I gotta ask, like, what was? Do you remember what you thought of those new tracks? And maybe, maybe a lot of the tracks on that tour were new for you if you were a new fan. But I think by that time I had gone deeper into the catalog and knew all the songs other than these new songs, obviously that they were playing and uh-huh. you know it was a hell of a it was a hell of a first rock concert for me <laughs> i bet uh, at that venue you know seeing these guys and at that point they were so mysterious to me because you know it wasn't like the internet where you can look up videos uh you know there was no, no easy way to find media unless you had the cassette or the a track or the vinyl mm-hmm. i didn't have a vcr at that point you know so i didn't even know what these guys looked like <laughs> And um, to see them live was just mind blowing. And yeah, and those songs, I, I, you know, honestly, I can't really rem- remember what I thought of them at the time. I, I, I probably couldn't have recognized them the next day because right. you know, just heard it, heard it once, and then I didn't hear it again until like six months later when the album actually came out. Well, I'm always I'm curious about that because the closest thing I have to that experience for me in my life was hearing. What was on what was essentially the Clockwork Angels warm up tour, the Time Machine tour, even though it was it was on a much bigger tour than any of those other warm up tours. Um, we got to hear Caravan and brought up to believe, but the difference is I had already digested those two tracks by the time I heard them on Time Machine, even though they were a leap into the future for Clockwork, sort of like um, you know, a teaser. Uh, it's not, I, how would it have been different? I wonder if I went to time machine and they were like, Oh, by the way, we're going to play these two tunes from our next album that you've never heard before. That would be really cool for me. I don't know if I would like that better because I did. I liked having the studio version. Um, right. Although I I would have had the time machine recording the DVD. So maybe it, it wouldn't have mattered. I would have had these two live recordings and I would have been able to wonder how will these sound uh, as a studio recording um so i am a yeah. li- i am pretty jealous that you got to hear those before they were actually a thing it was cool i i went back recently and found a um a bootleg of that show or that's that week of shows mm-hmm. and i listened to those early prototype songs and they 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 sounded pretty close to the recorded versions except for the guitar solos were completely different like alex was just improvising he didn't figure out the guitar solos yet that was the main difference. But I was also surprised that the the audience re- reaction was quite good. I mean, yeah. people were really cheering these new songs, even though they had no idea what they were listening to. So Yeah, I mean, you're like, oh, Alex was just kind of messing around with the solos yet. So you mean it was exactly the same as the Kid Gloves recording we all know? <laughs> that that solo is so improvisatory, if you want to say fancy jazz words like that. Like, it's it's, uh-huh. it's so spontaneous. I imagine it so probably I, sounded something like that. It was completely different, though, not nearly as good as the one he laid down on the record. Oh, yeah? Um, <laughs> yeah. I was reading uh, an interview from that year where Alex talks about that guitar solo specifically because I think it, tend- it ended up being a real favorite of his. He, he loved the way it came out. He said, but it was a real slog to get there. Huh. He said he was he was trying that solo over and over again for hours and hours, and it, he just wasn't... He wasn't liking it. And then, you know, eventually they took a break, went back into the control room, plugged his guitar and said, all right, screw it. I'm just going to rage on this. Right. And he he pulled out that brilliant solo that we now have recorded on it. Oh. And um, so it sounded like it, it didn't come easy, but when it came, it came in a major way. <laughs> totally. I You know, I've uh, I've had episodes in the past where we talk about how Grace Under Pressure may or may not be this transitional album between mm-hmm. the moving pictures, signals, sort of um, radio stuff, or not not radio stuff, but everybody knows what I mean. The uh, the more popular era, and this was like a transition into the synthy stuff. I have completely and utterly revoked that uh, <laughs> that labeling. Okay, that label. I think yeah. as I listen to it this week, I'm like, this is its whole separate, its own thing. And I know a lot of listeners told me that in the past when I said, oh, it's a transitional album. And that doesn't take anything away from the album. But now I listen to it and go, oh, this is absolutely an extension of Signals. It is Signals on steroids with a very different 
kind of aura, a different vibe to the album as a whole. It's not just, oh, now we're going to kind of do signals, but then kind of do power windows at the same time. I don't see it like that anymore. I see it as they took what signals was, which was, you know, kind of like really good tunes with more synthesizers than we were used to and uh, made new material like that and kind of put the pedal to the metal, uh, so to speak. Do you kind of, you know what I mean? Is that too long-winded? Yeah, no, I, I guess the way I think about it is it's kind of a sonic continuation of signals with a lot of synthesizers, but in this case, the guitar is much more prominent on Grace Under Pressure. Right. I think that was a reaction of uh, Alex feeling that the guitar was buried on signals. Yes. So he really fought back, and you know, this is a really guitar-heavy album, but it's also a synth-heavy album, so they found a really good balance, I thought, yeah. between the synth and the guitar. It's funny, because, like, uh, you know, we talk about Alex being buried by synths, and the more I dig into the music, especially in the album series, the more I go, no, he was never... You know, maybe maybe the guitar role got too far away from the role uh, musically that he wanted it to be, more of a, a rock role. Uh, but it was, I don't think it was ever not present enough. Okay, so like, here's an example. Um, Red Sector A. Red Sector A is a song that is so synth-heavy that Getty doesn't even play his bass guitar live, right? Cool. He takes his bass off. Um, obviously, there's synths. We hear them. But if you really listen to the role of the guitar in that song, the guitar is the main event. Like, like you take the intro, the opening, before there's any vocals, the guitar is telling the story. The synths are just there to support the guitar. The guitar is essentially the melody at that point. And um, yeah. a lot like you hear like these videos of people taking... Maybe they're taking like sounds that are being made from non-instruments and they layer them. So maybe at first you hear a pen click and then it goes, yep. and then they start adding things to it. Uh, by the end of that song of like these pen clicks, you realize that pen click has been going all along, but we added so much stuff to it. We kind of forgot about it. And then at the end of the song, they start pulling those layers away and you realize, oh, that mm -hmm. pen click is still there, and that was the root of the whole thing. That's what I hear in Red Sector A, and a lot of this album is Alex is mm -hmm. almost the most important event in a lot of these songs. Even though we throw all these synths on top of it, without him, there's nothing. So I don't see it as a throwaway part like a lot of people label it as. Totally. And I think part of it was that Alex really explored his like chordal playing yes. on this like red, I mean, like exactly like, what I was just saying. Red Sector is a great example. Yeah, that song. Like, I play a little guitar, and I spent months trying to figure out how to play that guitar part <laughs> back back in the eighties. It was like like nothing I had ever heard before. Yes. Like, what is this? What is he doing? <laughs> it's it okay. And, so uh, I, I I don't want to interrupt you a, a lot. I just want to say this before I forget. Um, red Sector was never my favorite track. I always thought it was a while it was heavy and it had a lot of meaning. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't like stick with me for whatever reason, um, but I listened to it on this listen through this week and thought, man, like that guitar part is like nothing I've ever heard. It's mm -hmm. and uh, I I like kind of mess around on guitar. I'm really bad at it, but I like to for instances like this where I go, I just gotta figure out how he's doing that. Uh, the mm -hmm. next time I have my guitar with me, I will absolutely be trying to figure that out. And I'm discouraged to hear that it took you months because now it sounds like it'll be a lot harder than I think it is. It's just so unusual. You know, he, he defies all like convention on this album. And there's, there's, there's like, he's playing all kinds of natural harmonics and little mini chords and a few solo notes here and there. And it's just this crazy concoction that, you know, he's like this mad scientist on the guitar on that song. And, um, he does a lot of that on other songs too. Like the the solo and after image is like all chords, but it's amazing. And um, and uh, I think distant early warning half of the solo there is chords, and throughout distant early warning, it's all these really inventive arpeggios, and uh, you know the kind of guitar parts that nobody, no other guitar player was playing at the time. Yeah, I mean maybe the clo closest would be that you could compare this to would be. Andy Summers of uh, Rush, of uh, Police, the Police, 
There's really? definitely some of that. Yeah, there's, there's some of that, but not, you know, Alex's stuff is just so much um, deeper and more involved, I think, than the kind of uh, guitar playing on the police. But there's some uh, inspiration there, I think. Interesting. I've never heard anybody, I've always wanted a comparison, or, or not a comparison, but I've always wanted somebody to be like, here, you know, Alex was doing something very different, but here's somebody who was kind of close, so I could compare those two. Um, yeah, you mentioned. I think he got. Oh, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. You I go. Was say, I think he got some in- inspiration from the guitar playing on the police, and I think the whole band, from what I read, was was were police fans at the time. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's some of those reggae and ska rhythms on signals, and and very similar pressure. I think come out of that, and some of the guitar tones too. I think. Alex is getting inspiration from the police. It's kind of shimmering, uh, bright guitar tones. Right. That was uh, that was kind of a signature of the police at the time as well. And, and did the police use as many synths as Rush was using? I don't think so. They were a little bit more sparse. Okay. Their, their songs. Yeah. You mentioned natural harmonics in the solo on uh, Red Sector A. And yeah. that's something I've always appreciated in Alex's playing because it's such a subtle thing that you can do on the guitar that I think a lot of rock and metal guitarists don't utilize uh, at all, let alone well. So there's sort of this lineage that I've always seen. Like, yeah, this whole solo essentially is natural harmonics in Red Sector A. Go back one album. There's that one section in the solo of Subdivisions that's natural harmonics that's it's just like the most goosebump worthy moment in that solo. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you could back it up even, even further and just look at the intro to Red Barchetta. Such, mm-hmm. ni- such amazing use of natural harmonics. Yeah, I mean, he set up the whole song of Red Barchetta with 100% natural harmonics. Mm-hmm. And then you go, go back to, you know, Xanadu, and that whole intro is natural harmonics with a volume pedal. So, like, he's been all over that. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Way going way back. Yep. Um, and I and I think there's quite a few harmonics on uh, hemispheres. Um, there's a section where he's it's kind of like chime like guitar mm-hmm. in the in the um, in the first part of hemispheres. And so he he's used uh, harmonics on most out al- most of the albums. I think. One. Uh, I just before we get off Red Sector A. We'll end by saying uh, I think Red Sector was one of the uh, one of the songs that benefited most from the Clockwork Angels string ensemble. Having the the, uh, mm-hmm. the string players on that that track it really benefited re- a really nice touch uh, or addition. Uh, well, let's move to I want to talk about two tracks that were my favorite right off the bat on this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, I think a lot of people would agree that these were two tracks that they loved at first as well. Obviously, Distant Early Warning. Distant Early Warning was one of the first tracks I, one of the first like really difficult things I learned on electric bass as a teenager. And I was learning, you know, okay, growing up, learning bass in like middle and high school, I was the only one in school who could play that instrument. Everybody was really kind of fascinated by it. Um, so they would be like, play something. And like you're playing, you're not playing an acoustic uh, six string guitar. You're playing a four string bass. Like there's really nothing to play to impress people. So I was trying to find things like that. I was playing "Leave That Thing Alone" and uh, "Malignant Narcissism," but "Distant Early Warnings" bassline was the only one that I would play for people where people would go, "Whoa, that's really cool." And I, that's always stuck out to me. Like this is the only baseline where I could play just the baseline with no other instruments, and people would be impressed by it. Um, a really fun baseline to play, and in terms of songwriting, perfectly constructed song that gets even better live. I agree, and I I couldn't believe how powerful that song sounded up on the R forty tour. And yeah. you know, at least at the at the two shows I was at, I was I went to the San Jose show and I went to the final show in L A. Forum, yep, which was up, which was quite an experience, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but when Distant Early Warning was played, like you know, the crowd went nuts. I think you know, I think there's a lot of fans around my age, so they have that same kind of. Uh, Nostalgia, yeah, attachment with this album, Mm -hmm. Um, because you know that was kind of prime time to become a 
uh, one of the prime times to become a Rush fan in the history of the band. And, you know, and this an early warning was their single. And it was, so it was the first song we all heard uh, off the album. You know, I remember, you know, hearing the announcement on rock radio that the new Rush single is coming, will be played at 8 p.m. Friday or whatever it was. And, you know, all of us had our cassette tapes ready to go to tape this <laughs> song because, you know, otherwise it's gone and you don't know when you're going to hear it again. Um, it wasn't like you could just press replay on, on YouTube. There was no yeah, YouTube. It's funny that I, I only got... I was able to get a taste of what that was like for a very brief amount of time because uh, Snakes came out just at the beginning of like this sort of internet super era, you know what I mean, where mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. is available. Uh, in 2007, that was still like, you know, if you had high-speed internet, it was a, a luxury, especially where mm-hmm. I lived. Um, so I still had, I did have a cassette recording. I recorded a cassette off the radio of some like Snakes and Arrows press release or whatever, where they play half the album and they play interviews from the band, um, and that was such a cool experience. And I'm, it's amazing that you were able to have that for likely every album since. Uh, I, that's a really cool thing. And you mentioned how you know you remember the DJ saying this is New Rush or whatever. Uh, yeah. This is pro. I think if I were your age and I had been listening for albums prior this is the first album for my tastes where i would hear distant early warning and go oh man we are in for a treat this is amazing like if you know i hear subdivisions you know subdivisions is incredible but i don't know if just to take subdivisions and judge the rest of the album i don't know if i'd be totally stoked on it i would love it but if i heard distant early warning i would go this is going to be an amazing album is that what you guys thought yeah, I mean, it was love at first listen. It was like, you know, I wasn't thinking synth error or rush or anything like that. I just thought it sounded like an incredibly modern, almost yeah. futuristic <laughs> song. Totally. It was like hard hard rocking, but like ahead of its time. Yep. And, you know, it was, it hit you like a ton of bricks in a good way. And, um, yeah, so we were, I was psyched and my friends were psyched. We liked it immediately. And then, um, like a week after that, I think I was able to see the video for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is early days of MTV, and but most of us, I don't, I don't even think any of my friends had cable TV yet, so um, I didn't have access to MTV at that year. But um, there was a weekly broadcast TV show called Friday Night Videos, and it was literally like you know one hour a week or something on a Friday night where they played the, t- the new video, the new music videos. And I caught um, this an early warning. And like you know, I was saying earlier, I, I had so little visual information about this band at the time. Like I could barely knew what they looked like, other than from some of the album covers. Like I had never seen any performance footage. So I think this an early warning was the first time I saw them playing their instrument, and I was like, just like mesmerized and um, wow. craving more. Like I need to see more of this and. What's um, what's funny is that might be the most deceptive era or, or their de- most deceptive image for you to like judge how the band looks, you know. I yeah. <laughs> you know Alex is pr- likely wearing some weird variation on a suit. Uh Getty yep. had a Steinberger which he really only had for that cu- those couple right. of years. Uh Neil had probably the Octagon drums, right? And and we really didn't see any of that ever again. I mean, Alex still wears suits, but um, that's really funny that you had no idea what they even looked like. And again, we're Barely, talking about yeah. a different era, you know, in in media. Um, yeah, I mean, I think around that year or the year later, one of my friends got a VCR. You know, the VCRs were like three thousand dollars or something <laughs> like that in in nineteen eighty three. Okay. Um, so I think one of my friends had one, and he's like, "You got to come over. I've got this tape." called Exit Stage Left, you know, videotape. I was like, you got what? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, that Exit Stage Left uh, live video was like like a holy tome of Rush. Uh-huh. It was like, you know, it was like seeing into the past. You know, it was, it was recorded like, what, three or four, three years earlier or something like that. But, you know, it was really encapsulated their, their whole classic 
uh, kind of a collection of songs. And, you know, to, to see that without having had many other visuals of the band, it was just mind blowing. You know, uh, this subdivisions is all over the radio at that time. And yeah. it's a great example of their ability to use weird meters like seven, which subdivision starts in seven on the radio, right? I mean, they're kind of known as that or known for it, but uh, subdivisions is in seven, but goes back into four and then back and forth, back and forth. Distant early warning comes out, starts in four. The main synth riff that we all know is in seven. And I don't even, I bet there are people listening right now who didn't know that. That's how seamlessly they're able to play weird time signatures. A, a great I did example. not know that myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I, I know that synth line like like the back of my hand. Exactly. And I, had, I, I had no idea it was in seven. It's so funny, like, <laughs> from a mu- me speaking as a music teacher, I you know, when I try to teach students about weird time signatures, it's always this super hard thing, but you really do have to just feel it and not count it. So, People like you, David, uh, who who had no idea it was anything exotic, but could play it or sing it easily because you just right. know it. Right. That, that's it a, makes to, it makes yeah, it makes total sense, and it, it's kind of irrelevant what time signature it's in. Right. Yeah, it really doesn't matter unless you're writing it down. Right. Uh, I love uh, weird time signatures are where I live. I love that stuff. Um, so the other the other track I loved immediately was the enemy within. And I think you could put this up there with a song that, for whatever reason, did not deserve to get so shunned for the rest of their career. Like, it got no love uh, outside of this tour. Um, I think it's hands down the best of the Fear Trilogy. And again, I, I'm done. You guys all know I'm done discounting the weapon in Witch Hunt. I'm, I'm, I do like those tracks now. But I, you know, maybe from a nostalgic point of view, I think The Enemy Within is my favorite. Um, again, a really cool bass line to learn as a growing bass player. A really hard bass line because it was so fast, kind of in a, a big money or marathon sort of way. Uh, in that old Getty style, was not easy to learn. But um, I don't know. I, this was always a track with every tour I wanted to hear the enemy within and never got it. Yeah, I guess it might be the, the only tour they played. It might have been Grace Under Pressure. I guess. I think so. And um, yeah, I, I, my favorite out of those is actually the weapon, um, and it, it just has a really cool instrumental section and uh-huh. guitar solo. One thing I was I'm a little disappointed with Enemy Within is no, I don't think there's any guitar solo in that song. There's like a synth interlude, interlude instead. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great song. I, I think I kind of wish there was a little more guitar going on there. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe this is an example of a song that had maybe just a touch too much synth and not enough guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, the guitar part on that track is on all upbeats, and it's mm. other fast upbeats, and it's a very hard thing to teach a guitarist to do or any musician to do is pl- uh, play only upbeats. Uh, and this is a song I would literally give to a student who was struggling with that and say, "Listen to what mm. he's doing," or even better, a video. Because uh, it's a very, yeah. it's very physical in nature to be able to perform like that. Uh, yeah, it gives it that, it gives it that feel, and I'm sure there's a name for that feel, but it definitely has that feel. <laughs> yeah, it's um, there's a lot of things happening that you don't hear that you would see. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure you know what I mean as a guitarist. You're you're strumming down, but you're not hitting any strings. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next track that I enjoyed most after those two was Between the Wheels. Uh, don't you think I could argue Between the Wheels might be the top three, top five heaviest tracks they've ever written? Yeah, so I've got my notes here, and I just have the word heavy in caps. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was reading about um, the, the recording and the writing of this album, and it's an interesting tidbit is Between the Wheels was the first song they wrote starting in August 1983 when they started the writing process. Wow. <laughs> so essentially, we went from countdown to, to between uh-huh. the wheels. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a heavy song, and live it's a beast, right? It's incredibly heavy synths with really hard rock and guitar soloing on top of it. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
you know, it's got all the Cold War themes and anxieties and paranoia, which kind of sums up kind of the themes of this album. Right. Uh, as far as, as far as lyrical and thematic, but yeah, I mean, there's a huge guitar presence in this song, and it's it's like heavy and hard at the same time, which you don't, which is hard to do. <laughs> Because yeah. heavy and hard are, are di- really two different ways to describe uh, uh, rock music, and this song has both at the same time. I imagine you've probably seen this, if you've seen most of the tours, you've, you've seen it three times? Grace Under Pressure, maybe there's something in the middle, but I know it was played on Snakes, that's where I saw it, and uh, R30, I think? Or Rio, or one of yeah, those? Uh, it has... Yeah, they def- I think they took a break in the late '90s era, and then they brought it back in the, in the early 2000s, like you said. Or maybe it was Time Machine. I, I don't know, but yeah, it's been played yeah. recently. Uh, you know yeah. how you know how I know they wanted to be they wanted it to be even heavier as they you know kind of revisit it and the revisited mm-hmm. it in the 2000s was Alex takes out that big fat black uh, Les Paul. I think he calls it Big mm-hmm. Al. It's you. You know it's heavy as hell. Uh, he talks about it in how he uses it for drop tunings, which between the wheels is drop D, makes it even heavier. Um, mm-hmm. You know it's gonna be heavy when you see that guitar, and between the <laughs> super low bass pedals that they use at the beginning and end, uh, and yeah. and how Alex just kind of goes off and sounds like a sociopath in a way at the end of that song playing these crazy sounds uh really quite an experience yeah it's interesting you mentioned the guitar he's he's using um you know in in modern times when he's playing this live because this album you know he used all strats to record grace under pressure and maybe one telecaster or something like that oh that's a good point that's very different from kind of before and after. Because strats um, aren't known for being big and ballsy, right? Yeah, they have kind of a very distinctive character to them and maybe a little thinner than some of the other guitars he's used. Right. And um, for whatever reason, at the time, he wasn't into into Les Pauls and that t- those types of things. Um, literally, this entire album was some version of a strat. You know, I, I'm just noticing, I'm just realizing now, like, right as... You know, in 2016, Alex is known as a Les Paul player. He's got his signature model. He played. Um, he's played millions of Les Pauls in the last 15 years, but he really didn't play Les Pauls until maybe like the Vapor Trails tour. Did he? He was Paul Reed yeah, Smith it, in the 90s. It's kind of like a yep. Strat. Uh, he had those big Gibsons, but those weren't Les Pauls. Mm-hmm. And interesting. I never kind of realized that. Yeah, he seems to gravitate towards the uh, the Les Pauls in kind of the modern rush era mm-hmm. when he basically wanted to get heavier, I guess. Now he's got these Les Pauls where they, the pickups change. Uh, he can essentially have any guitar sound he wants with his signature Les Paul. Mm-hmm. I found one here in New York City. I went to a guitar center, and these guitar centers now have like such predictable inventory. You know, it's the same. It's identical from store to store. Um, none of it's super high quality instruments, but then there's like this back room that you gotta somehow locate. It's a really hard to find room, and you get in there, and the you know the most expensive guitars are three stories up. You can hardly see them, but right in the middle of their of their their number one showcase wall, at the very top, was this red Les Paul with a beautiful quilted top. And I could only see the price was like $7,999. And I looked at wow. the guy and I said, I had a Floyd Rose. I'm like, is that an Alex Lifeson model? He goes, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't read it. I couldn't figure out if that was it. But uh, it was beautiful. I don't have eight grand, though. Uh, so uh, The Body Electric is a song that I've performed with my buddy Brandon Hotelling, uh, who's been on a pr- uh, previous episode. Sometimes he comes over and we jam, and we worked that one out. We performed it. What I learned from that performance was interesting because I, I actually didn't play bass. I think my dad played bass or something, and I, I sang and played keyboard. The keyboard part in that song is this, uh, 
one five one kind of thing in in jazz talk where you play uh with one hand you play the first note you play the fifth up and then you play that first note but an octave higher so it goes uh da 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 right it does that synth pattern through most of the song as I listened this week, that synth pattern happens in half the half the songs on the album. It, it appears everywhere. It happens in Red Sector, I believe. Um, a, it just is sort of a theme on this record. And I don't know what else to say about it, just that I noticed that. Um, you know, I don't know if that happens at any other records where it's like, oh, the synth does this one thing and it does it on every song. Hmm. I don't know. Well, it's a great tra- a great track, and there's a really cool video on YouTube. It's set to Star Wars videos. So you're hearing the song, and it's like R2 and C-3PO running around, and it's a, if you haven't seen that, <laughs> check that out. Yeah, it's got, you know, Biotrix's got that great drum intro mm-hmm. that's so distinctive. And then um, I love the guitar in this song, too. It's got, this is what, definitely those, police-like shimmering guitar chords right. and a really good guitar solo that fits the song really well. It's got a terrible music video associated with it. I don't know if you've seen that. It's uh, Yeah, once or twice. <laughs> Is it with the it, bubbles it, or something? It's just a bunch of like futuristic, like a science fiction set, set <laughs> yeah, with yeah. some robot-like things. And It was infuriating to me at the time because there's virtually no footage of the, ba- of the band in the video. <laughs> And you know, all I wanted to see was their performance. I couldn't yeah. care about the other crap. I agree that when I see a video, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, so we know after Image is this like emotionally heavy song, mm. and um, it took me a while before I knew that. Before I knew that, I just—I mean, obviously, you listen to the lyrics, you get an idea, but I didn't know how direct it was for the band. Yeah, apparently um, a friend of Neil, and who, who was an assistant engineer at Le Studio, died in a car crash going to the studio to, uh, that year that they were recording the record, and that's who it's about. And uh, yeah, the vid- they, have, they have a video for this as well, and you could see kind of the pain on everyone's face. And at the end of the video, Neil just kind of lowers his head, and it's pretty somber. Wow, I did. I don't know if I've ever seen that video. Yeah, it's actually all performance, almost all of a performance video. So, huh. like lots of close-ups on Alex playing those awesome chords and stuff, and so it's pretty interesting. But you can you kind of see the uh, the nature of their, their um, grief in the video. Actually, for for me, before I knew all of that, I just knew it as a really great song, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm not down to discount any of what we just said, but. Um, I don't think it's a I don't think it's well received because of all that heaviness. I think it's it's just a great it's a great song on its own even. You know? Um Yeah. Was it ever played live? I know it wasn't played live on anything after Grace Under Pressure tour, but did they play it on that tour? They did. Um so they actually played every song from the album on the tour and they didn't play every song in every show. They 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 swapped out after image and kid gloves um, halfway through the tour. So, um, and all the other songs were played at, at every show, I believe. So all eight tracks were played at some point during the tour. It, it, it's such, I'm listening, I'm like playing it back in my head right now. What a great, great, great song. I think an example of, a role reversal here between the synthesizer and the guitar. Just a ni- just a tiny little section where he says, "I feel the way you would," and the guitar goes da na da na 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 na. Right? Uh-huh. He's sort of laying out and then inserting little melodic moments in between the vocals, which is a lot of times the role of the keyboard. So look, let's look at what the keyboard's doing at that moment. These big heavy pads that are filling out uh-huh. the mid range of the sound. Isn't that what a rock yeah. guitarist would normally do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, so there's this constant narrative that they're somehow butting heads, and we know they were, and, and Alex will admit it. But there, I think he did it so well. Like, he didn't butt heads. It's not like Alex said, nope, 
you know, the guitar, the synthesizer's doing all this mid-range stuff and filling up the space, but that's my thing too, so I'm going to do that as well. He went and found where he was needed musically and where he was, mm-hmm. where it was necessary and appropriate for him to be. Uh, I, we could talk about that forever. And we'd probably find examples of that in every song, ever. <laughs> and, and Alex's solo in After Image is one of, probably the best example of this chordal solo playing. And it's just such a catchy solo that is not really a solo. It's like a solo of chords. It's like a wild, wild thing. <laughs> you know, it's what another interesting thing about that solo section. While we can talk about how Rush can play in seven and make it feel like something less exotic, how about their ability to play in four and make it feel exotic? <laughs> okay, but this is something about that solo section feel a little, a feel a little different. It's it's still just yeah. it, it's a it's the, it's in four, and I'll tell you what's different about it. Um, the phrases are different. They're they're playing in phrases of six. So when you listen to the uh. solo, it goes one. Uh, one, two, three, four, two, three, four, and that goes on to six instead of fours or eights or sixteens. Yeah, how your ear is trained. Um, that that's a not that's such a difficult thing to do and do well. And there's so many examples mm. on this album. What do we yeah, have left cool. here? Oh, we have my um, the the track that I think is most similar to Genesis, Red Lenses. The, be- the middle of that tune just reminds me of a Genesis song. I don't know. It, I, I And I, I admittedly don't know much Genesis, but do you hear it? Yeah, well, at the time, this was the weirdest, most unusual rough song I'd ever heard, but I liked it. <laughs> you liked it right and off the bat? Because I didn't. I Well, I don't know if I liked it right off the bat. I, it was definitely the weirdest song on the album for me, and I, ter- I came to like it. Uh-huh. I don't know how long that took. Um, it's, it's got this like really long middle, maybe this is the part you're talking about, the Genesis, really long middle instrumental section. There's like a marimba interlude or something. And then there's synth guitar chord stuff. And then there's just drum and bass. And then there's acapella vocals. It's like, what the hell is going on here? It's like, that's like no other Rush song I've ever heard. <laughs> but when he, when the, like you said, it's acapella and he drops out and says, barometer starts to fall you know it gets to us all and then the band comes back in what a right like, those right. are the moments that make even just eh, songs really really strong yeah and a, a lot of my listeners yeah. like to point out the how getty goes completely bonkers on his bass at the end of this track which and is something that out, yeah like <laughs> i would always you know this was the weakest on the album for me as a growing listener or growing rush fan uh, you know, I, I like it now. I really appreciate it now. But at the time, it was like, if I could get through red lenses, I would re- reward myself by, once it starts to fade out, I'd just be like, all right, next. Let's get to Between the Wheels. <laughs> so oh. I never, I almost never heard it. And then people, listeners would be like, isn't it crazy how he goes nuts on his bass at the end? And I listened to when, oh, I guess I never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Did we get everything? Am I missing something? Yeah, it- we talked a little bit about Kid Gloves solo, but not really the rest of the song. I think Kid Gloves is in a weird time signature as yeah, well. Yeah, 5-4 f- right off the bat. And and this yeah, is yeah. an easy one to count. You could literally just count the notes. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, right? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, that's an unusual uh, unusual song as well. It just got this weird feel to it. I guess it's the time signature. And then, like, uh, there's the, the synth sounds are almost like synthesized horns or something and that's that's different and uh and then that guitar solo just rips don't you think like especially as a guitarist don't you think this is maybe the most representative solo of alex as a soloist could be you know it's like flashy but inventive right and fits fits the song unlike most guitar solos soloists. (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) You know, he that's I think that's one of the things about Alex like he really uh writes solos that fit into the song and I guess right is probably the wrong answer but I mean my understanding is he doesn't write these solos he just keeps improvising them until he gets one he likes yeah and but what a, that's such that's, an organic way to go about it yeah I mean I exist in this 
world of improvising now, and I'm not saying I love it, but you know, the, I what I do at school all day is improvise and, and play with people who are improvising. So it's nice for me to go into the rush world uh, every Sunday and think, oh, there is still a little bit of impro- improvisation happening. Same with Neil and his drumming now. You know, he we know that he's trying to improvise a bit more live. Uh, that right. means a lot to me because impro- improvising is a very important part of performing music. Uh, so to have, you know, especially since I studied classical for a long time where there was zero improvising. Mm. You know, there were times where, you know, in Baroque music, for example, where there was improvising happening. But for a long hundreds of years, people weren't improvising and... Uh, it's important, so it's fun to have. It's fun to know that Rush does that. And anytime I see like there are a couple of videos floating around of uh, Alex recording his solos in the studio, and you can see it. He's you know, like you said, one or two takes of just like let's see what happens. Yeah, I think it's a lot more than one or two takes. Um, but he'll just keep doing it. He'll just keep trying it over and over again, try a different approach, and then you know finally end up with one he likes. Yeah. Wow. We've talked about the artwork on this album and how there was an issue and the one we all know isn't exactly correct with how Hugh Syme wanted it to look. Like, there was a printing right. issue. Regardless of all of that, what an amazing piece of art. Yeah, it's so unusual. I think I sent you a picture of my high school denim jacket, which I had this cover yeah. painted on. <laughs> he had the whole... David had the whole the whole album art cover it was it was painted directly onto the denim on the back of your jacket. Yep. Yeah. Who did you find to do that? Uh, back in the early '80s, this was kind of a thing you did with uh, you know rock fans with denim jackets, paid artists to paint their favorite album covers on their on their back of their jacket. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, there was some uh, there was some artist known to folks to folks in my school who was really talented and. I paid him a couple hundred bucks probably, or I don't know how much it was at the time to do that. And I think he, I think he used, uh, airbrush techniques. Right. Um, he, he did a really good job, but yeah, I've got the original album in front of me and you know, this album, you know, I, I, this is that first album I bought on release day for rush. Uh-huh. And, you know, so I literally remember the day that I rode my bike to the neighborhood record store and, showed up and there was a delivery truck that was unloading a box and that box was the first delivery of grace under pressure <laughs> and i waited i waited for the owner to open the box and i got the first copy out of the box yeah <laughs> and, and like that's the part of the music industry that has vanished yeah you know yeah. actually we could maybe speak to like hipsters and who, who hipsters who like insist vinyl is the way to go? At least they're sort of keeping the hard copy version of the hard copy world alive. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe right. it'll be cool to have hard copy CDs in ten years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something great about it. You know, these large uh, vinyl sleeves. There's so much room for the artwork, and yeah. you can really you can really study it and, and read the lyrics. David, but, yeah. I would say the art of, so I've got that Art of Rush book and it has the proper printing of this album yes. cover. And it's much and it's darker, right? Much darker, much more stunning and dramatic, uh, a lot more contrast. Uh-huh. And like th- that's that cloudy sky is almost black. Yeah. In the in the in the proper version of this, so it's really ominous like serious storm cloud action. Can you imagine being Hugh Syme? You paint this, like, what he calls, I think in the Art of Rush book, he says it's his best, or, or he loved it at the time. And then you send mm-hmm. it away to get printed on every Rush album that gets made, and you see it on the album, you're like, what the hell is this? Yeah, you know? I think he was pretty, pretty upset about that. <laughs> I imagine any artist would be like, come on. Uh, David also sent me, he emailed me some uh, materials before the show, uh, some photographs from the Grace Under Pressure tour where you, you mentioned it was his first tour with electronic drums, right? That's right, yeah. And they, um, th- it didn't spin, <laughs> so he would just turn around and play with his back to the audience? Right, so that that was uh, that those 
Grace Under Pressure warm-up show at Radio City Music Hall. I think that was the first show that he brought out um, the electronic drums, and he had he did not have a spinning kit yet. So, oh, so did he have it on the actual tour? He did, okay. but he didn't. He didn't travel overseas with it. So if you find some videos of uh, Rush playing internationally outside of North America, uh, you can see him facing with his back facing the crowd during like red red lenses and red sector a wow, that's a uh, that's a very specific yeah. bit of information but you know g- good research <laughs> that he didn't yeah, go overseas a, with it yeah i think it was just too heavy or something and um but he did have it for the proper tour in north america his uh, octagon rotating kit but you can see right away the, the non-rotating version of that kit has a square base mm-hmm. uh and um yeah, I think one of those photos from Radio City Music show, Music Hall shows Neil with his back facing the audience. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool album, and it's I like I said I wanted to, I want to get rid of the idea that it's a transitional album because number one it stands on its own, and number two, you could say every album except the first and the most recent were transitional albums, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, isn't mm-hmm. that how music works? <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, it's leading up to one of my favorite albums in Power Windows. But it's, like I said, it stands on its own. There isn't a weak track. There isn't, um, you know, I would argue a perfect album. We, We talked about this on 2112, I believe. Every album needs kind of like a runt of the litter, right? That... Isn't like the others. We have that in Red Lenses. Red Lenses isn't like anything else on this album. We right. need sort of a palate cleanser, uh, sort of like Tears on Twenty One Twelve, right? So an interesting fact about Red Lenses: that was the last song written for this album. Oh, see, that's so weird. Like the order that they're written in is very interesting to me because it's a, a very organic look at the chronologic. Uh, the chronologic nature of their songwriting. Like, if you get rid of all the albums and you just have the songs, uh, you know, for example, like, at this point in their career, you have Grace Under Pressure and Signals. But instead of having them in groups, you would just have the collection of songs and Signals ordered in whichever way they wrote them, and then the collection of songs on Grace Under Pressure ordered in whichever way they wrote them. You know what I mean? That would be a really cool look at, a true look at how they were written uh, in time. Right. Oh, and the other thing we haven't mentioned was, this is a huge fact about this album, this is the first album produced without Terry Brown. Oh, right, yeah. And and I somebody told me they were sort of scrambling to get it produced, or like they self-produced it or something. Right, so they, they had a really hard time finding a producer for this, and it took way too long. They ended up writing the entire album and doing the Radio Shitty City shows before they ended up with their producer. So this, you know, this was largely done. They hadn't recorded it yet, but they had basically written the wow. entire album before. That so essentially, this is a look at what a Rush album would be without, you know, a fourth party, without somebody it, else it, from the outside uh, influencing them. Even more so because in an interview with Getty, so the eventual um, producer they got was this guy was named Peter Henderson, okay. and Getty, Getty's on record saying that this Peter Henderson was a great engineer, but not much of a producer. So, in you know, so some of the sound on this album could be uh, a response or because of uh, the talents of Peter Henderson. But as far as the song editing and everything else, and you know, the things that producers usually do, I yeah, think that was all rushed. The musical aspect, the creative aspect of it, right? Right. I've often thought uh, that, like, what what would Snakes and Arrows sound like if we didn't have Nick? If it was just the right. three of them, you know? Um, right. Obviously, something we'll never know, but it's fun to think about. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what Terry Brown thinks of the like. In 1984, uh, this album, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder in 1984, like he hears the album, and what does he think? Does he go, "Oh man, like this one was way way better than Signals"? I I like this one, or does he think, <laughs> you know, "Oh, I could have made this better"? I imagine yeah. there's no bad blood between the band and Terry Brown, right? 
I, I assume not. I think uh, they've been, they've been, they've appeared on some making of albums things together, uh, mm-hmm. and they seem like they were oh, still friendly. Yeah. Um, That's right. They did like a, a moving pictures thing on YouTube that you can see, where they yeah, where they're in a studio, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think it's twenty one twelve as well. And Terry Brown even has the multi tracks, and he kind of fades in and out on yeah. the mixing board. That's right. Which is definitely worth watching if anyone hasn't seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at the time, it sounds like it might have been a little, a little rough between them at the time when they kind of broke up with each other, mm-hmm. um, because you know they had a lot, of, they, had a, they had a long run, and then suddenly they, you know, rushed aside. They need to try something different. You know, I, I, I hate these like big statements because they, it makes it seem like I'm throwing albums into one corner or or, or judging, but. I think you could say these songs, and it makes sense because these songs on Grace are newer and they're better musicians when they recorded them than Signals. These songs are better songs than Signals. While while some of maybe like some of the tracks and Signals sound good and and they're more appealing, or or you could say they're quote unquote better songs. I think these are more well, they're they're better crafted on Grace. Um, from a songwriting standpoint, they're they're more mature. You know, I don't. I'm not sitting here saying a, a blanket statement like everything on Grace is better than everything on Signals, but uh, I think Grace Under Pressure is less up and down in terms of moods and um, mm-hmm. maybe overall rating. So I I wonder if Signals didn't exist and we went from Moving Pictures to Grace, if Terry Brown would have went, oh, this is this is good stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I have no desire to leave. More stuff yeah. I never know. I've talked to Terry. I've emailed Terry, and it doesn't sound like he's into it. But <laughs> it would be cool to ask him this stuff, you know. Really? Yeah, you should keep trying. That'd be awesome. To get <laughs> really? You think the answer is just just email him once a day? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey man, it's Jay. Just, uh, <laughs> happy Wednesday. <laughs> um, no, this was uh, this is a good episode, David. Do you have anything else you wanted to share? Um, we covered most of it, I think. I, yeah, I, I, I was a little curious, like, I, to see what reviews were at the time. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't find much, but I found the Rolling Stone review by Kurt Loder. And, you know, there's one line in there that is all you need to hear. He said, Alex Lyson is not a particularly interesting lead guitarist. <laughs> okay. Like, now that's, okay. that's very telling. <laughs> and I, I, I would agree. Like, he he's not a lead guitarist in a band with one guitarist, right? Uh, <laughs> he's not a very part. He's what? Say it again. Alex Lyson is not a particularly interesting <laughs> lead guitarist. That's the most passive aggressive insult I've ever heard about the band. <laughs> and and you know the thing of everything we just spoke about, like you can't get much more of an interesting guitarist than than some of the stuff he did on his album. So obviously this reviewer was not really hearing yeah like album. like is interesting really the word he needed there or he wanted because i think you could argue he's the most interesting guitarist at this <laughs> right. time you know like if the word interesting i think you're you're thinking of something else yeah <laughs> i don't know he was probably looking for a eddie van halen eruption solo or something i don't know right yeah because he's not tapping <laughs> on his guitar right. or something you know uh not enough pinch harmonics right <laughs> Uh, which hey, like Alex does his fair share of pinch harmonics, you know. That's that's true. He uses them when they when they uh, are appropriate. <laughs> exactly. We used to call them when I like we were just messing around on electric guitar with a bunch of distortion as teenagers. We would call them uh, squealies. We didn't know mm-hmm. what pinch harmonics were. We just called them like sque- you put a squealie on that one. What's a, what's like the big? There's aren't there one or two moments, one or two pinch harmonics that are like sort of big moments for oh, Alex. Yeah. yeah, Kid Gloves has a few. Oh, yes, in the solo, right? Some really yeah. nice ones that he digs in on. Yeah. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I'm getting too excited talking about pinch harmonics. Uh, and uh, Power Windows has a, a lot of them. Power Windows and Hold Your Fire because he had those like high-gain single-coil pickups. Mm. They really sliced through, like uh, turn the page has so many really juicy 
pinch harmonics in it. The solo oh. in uh, Grand Designs and Emotion Detected, there's a lot of really, really cool squealies. I'm going to start saying that again. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> David Schmidt, thank you very much for being on. Do you have Do you have a Twitter account you'd like to plug? Uh, no, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do, but I don't really post anything. <laughs> I understand. It's all good. Uh, no, thank you very much for being on the show. You did a great job, and it was good talking to you. Thanks. This is really fun. I know we thought we've emailed for like forever, it seems like. So it's good to finally talk in person, quote-unquote, in yeah, person, keep... <laughs> across the yeah. country. Keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to the rest of the album series. Thanks, man. Uh, and I hope you, uh, hope you don't stop emailing. I hope to talk to you soon. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll keep sending you my thoughts. All right, thank you guys for listening. We'll be back with one of the coolest albums ever. <laughs> I'm not, listen, I'm not that biased, but I really like Power Windows, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, David. Thanks, bye. All right, talk to you soon.